Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is A Door Standing Open in Heaven by Pastor Sean Wood. This morning we're reminded of the words of two men on the road to Emmaus. And after talking with Christ, they said, did our hearts not burn within us and did he not open our understanding? And so this morning as we open your word, Lord, I pray that fires would be lit in our hearts, that our hearts would burn within us, and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would open our understanding this morning. Open our eyes, I pray, our spiritual eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. We leave chapter 3, now head off into chapter 4. Today is kind of part 1, chapters chapters 4 and 5 a part of the same vision. We will finish the second part when I come back off holidays on the 19th, which is very important. I think it's it's poignant for around Christmas time. Um, I'm excited for what comes next. We we kind of leave the letters to the churches. We've kind of been through every one of those letters. And I'm excited for what comes next because uh, there's so much here that exemplifies the glory of God. I I wonder how many history buffs, there should be people in the room today that have an answer for this question, but there was a monumental event that happened on the 16th of July, 1969. 1969 was a good year for some people, 1979 was a better year, but 1969 was a really good year for... uh, uh, Thank you very much. Russell, you're sitting at the front for a reason. Okay, do we have a chocolate for Russell? Okay. (laughs) The the first manned mission to the moon, Apollo 11, uh, departed Cape Canaveral on July the 16th. On July the 20th, they would set foot on the moon. Three men, uh, Neil Armstrong, Michael Cooper and Buzz Aldrin. Something really phenomenal happened on the journey. For those who don't know, Buzz Aldrin was actually a man of God. Buzz Aldrin would eventually take communion on the moon. Uh, what a phenomenal thing to do, hey? Um, he spoke with his pastor at long length about what could we do to mark this occasion. And his pastor said, I couldn't think of anything better than to take some emblems into space and have communion on the moon. And he had communion on the moon. What a wonderful thing. Yeah, amen. Well, there, you can put the American flag on, but that was putting the Jesus flag on the moon. Amen. But something, something profound happened. These guys took off, and uh, as they're going around the orbit of the moon before they had landed, they come around the dark side of the moon, and again, Earth comes into view. And uh, everybody's waiting with bated breath because they've kind of been in dodgy communication going around the dark side of the moon. But, but then they come around, and NASA's waiting for what the first words will be. Buzz Aldrin's first words were, in the beginning, God. What a statement, eh? What had happened was three men that were in that lunar module that day, they'd lived on Earth according to an assumed reality. We live our lives the same as they do. They had lived in the reality. They thought that reality was everything that we can see and touch here. But in a moment, in a, in a, in a heartbeat, they come around the dark side of the moon and they get a whole new perspective. A whole new perspective. And all of a sudden... They realise that, yes, our life here on earth is a reality, but there's something far grander, far more real. And it put a brand new perspective on the reality that they had lived for many years. Today, we are going to step through a door. 
John is going to step through a door and I give you warning today that as we step through this door, it will change our perspective. And as it does, it has to impact our daily lives here. If you look through church history, if you look through the Bible, those who marked and impacted their generation for the kingdom of God the most were those that lived here on earth with a greater sense and knowledge of the reality that is outside of our own. John, in a heartbeat, the Apostle John will step through a door and realise that there is an unseen world that is far more real than the world we live in right now, and it runs parallel with our world. And in fact, John, as we unfold more of the book of Revelation, we will find that John's perspective allows him to see that everything that happens here in this world is a flow-on effect of the real world. We have to, as we make our way through, we kind of have to ask ourselves a few questions. In a moment, we'll get to those. John begins his chapter 4 after this. After what? After the vision and the message to the seven churches in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Wow. I can remember when I was a new Christian, someone gave me a videotape when I was a new Christian and said, you've got to listen to this. I said, okay, no worries. So I started listening to this. It was an American preacher that spoke for an hour and a quarter about a a journey that he had taken to heaven. And he spoke about things that he reckoned he had seen. He spoke about stuff that he thought he had experienced. But he was talking like he'd gone down to the milk bar and got the morning paper. What we're going to see is, and if you read the account in Scripture, men that encountered heaven didn't speak like they'd gone down to the milk bar to get the paper. John says, after this, I saw a door standing open in heaven, he says, and and the first voice we know from chapter 1, it's the voice of Christ, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Imagine that. As you work your way through the book of Revelation, you're going to hear the word like quite a lot. There's a reason for that. Uh, When men step into that reality, when man steps into that reality, they are clambering for English words to describe what their eyes are seeing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I know of a man, speaking of himself, I know of a man that was caught up in the third heaven and he saw things that I can't put into English words. That's what he's saying. I, I can't describe what I saw. John says, there was a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And in a moment, John's eyes are open. Uh, I'm not sure of those that are aware of the account, but the best way to describe what's going to happen here for the Apostle John and for us also is the wonderful account in 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a prophet uh, in the land by the name of Elisha. Uh, for those that know of Elisha. And we don't know the name, interestingly enough, it may or may not be Gehazi, but he has a young servant. And uh, Elisha has been, uh, Israel and Syria uh, are in battle and at war, and Israel keep defeating Syria because they're getting inside information. God's telling Elisha the secret meetings that are going on uh, inside the Syrian camp, and then Israel is taking them by surprise. And they find out eventually that it's Elisha. And the young servant walks out in the morning, if you could picture it for a moment, the young servant walks out in the morning to pick kale fresh for breakfast. And as he's making his way out, he opens his eyes and he sees a, an army on the hills. And he starts shaking like this. You know, 
To put it in our language, he's like, what on earth are we going to do? Now, good old Elisha, to kind of put it in our modern vernacular, good old Elisha, he's just made himself a cup of tea. He's taken a seat, no dramas. Uh, The panicked servant alerts Elisha, and Elisha's like, Lord, open this man's eyes. In a moment, this young servant saw a reality that was always there. Elisha knew it was there, and he conducted his life according to what he knew was there. But in a moment, the young servant's eyes were opened, and he saw chariots and fire surrounding the army. And as they descended upon the house, we know that they were struck with blindness. My prayer today is that each and every one of us would begin to step through that door and that God would open our eyes to a reality beyond our immediate circumstances. As we work our way through the rest of the book of Revelation, but particularly this chapter and the next chapter, we're going to have to ask three questions. First question is, here's the most important questions you need to ask. What did John see and what did John hear? This is The book of Revelation is not a linear historical unfolding of events. It is a series of visions that is given to John and we have to ask ourselves to be able to draw the meaning and the fullness of what is going on here. We have to ask ourselves, John, what did you see and what did you hear? We will answer that question in a moment when John steps through that door. What did he see is the first thing. Next question we need to ask today is, how does what he sees alter our perspective? And the most important question that we need to ask as we work our way through the book of Revelation is, how should and does that perspective impact our daily lives? Let's begin with what does John see and what does John hear? Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. What does Jesus mean by take place after this? It's not a reference of, of linear events, but it's rather a reference to the unfolding events, events that have unfolded, events that are unfolding and events that will unfold through the church age. I will show you what must, must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, says John, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the first thing John sees isn't these huge fish swimming in a pond and a rod sitting by the water. That's not what John saw. He didn't see a golf course where the hole moves to where you hit the ball. He didn't see that. In fact, John Piper, uh, uh, I love John Piper. I love for how he has taught me what Christian hedonism really is and that is taking all of our delight in God. But I love the words of John Piper. He asked us to imagine heaven for a moment. Imagine stepping from this life into the next life. Imagine what that looks like for you right now. And in all of your imaginings, if you step from this world into the next world and Jesus is not the focus of that, he says, I'm not sure you will be there. He's retired now. Maybe you're allowed to say those things when you're a retired pastor. But maybe he has a point. The first thing John sees isn't all this other peripheral stuff. The first thing he sees, the most important thing you will see in heaven is a throne and the one seated upon a throne. The most important thing, we'll get to why the throne is important. But let's unpack a little bit of what he sees here. We're going to start moving into symbolism, which I'll unpacked to the best of my ability as we work forward. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Isn't it interesting that he says there was one seated? It doesn't, doesn't use any names. Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and 
carnelian. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. We will unpack more of the the importance that stones actually play in chapter 21, but this is speaking of the overall sovereignty and immense glory of God. It is the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne. Listen to some of this language. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Whatever position you take on the book of Revelations this morning, here's one Immutable, unchangeable fact about the book of Revelation. It is the unfolding judgment of God upon the nation of Israel under the old covenant. And what we see pictured is a throne. We will also, in a moment, we're going to read a passage from the book of Ezekiel. Freaky little dude from the Old Testament, but he saw exactly what John is seeing now. He describes exactly the same stuff. In fact, he describes the rainbow. And here's some really good news this morning. What what that rainbow speaks for is the immense mercy of God. You see, each and every single one of us are born deserving God's judgment. What that rainbow speaks of is the same as what it spoke of in the days of Noah, that God's immense mercy and favour will rest upon his people despite the judgment that may unfold on others. The message of Noah is that God has prepared another ark. His name is Jesus. But when we look at Noah, when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, what did God rescue his people from? It wasn't tribulation. It wasn't suffering. It wasn't persecution. God always delivered his people from judgment. This wonderful, immense, sovereign, all-powerful God, surrounded in glory that, that John is struggling to describe. He sees a rainbow, which is resemblance of God's mercy. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. A little bit about that in a moment. Were 24 thrones and seated on those thrones were 24 elders. A little bit more about those dudes in a moment. Clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Can you imagine what John is saying? I love the words of one commentator. One commentator says that the thunder and the peals of thunder and the lightning speak of the whole throne is fizzing with power. Just imagine for a moment the one that is seated upon that throne. Fizzing with power. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. A little bit about numbers in a moment. Numbers are enormously important in the book of Revelation and enormously important concerning prophetic language. Verse 6, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And I love that. I love that because everywhere else in Scripture, sea is, uh, seas and oceans are, are mentioned as random chaos. But before the presence of God, there's not even a disturbance. You know, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, where God says to Moses and a handful of others, he says, come up here. And immediately they described like sapphire, pavement stones of sapphire before his throne. Let let me read a passage to you from Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the, the, the prominence of Ezekiel is he sees the glory of God in Babylon. 
He wasn't in church. He wasn't in the prayer closet. In the midst of Babylon, he sees the glory of God. Have a listen to how he... Read chapter 1 when you get home and just... Just when you get in your prayer closet during the week, read chapter 1 of Ezekiel and go, man, I wonder what this guy saw. It's so overwhelmed by what he saw was Ezekiel, he says later on that I spent seven days by the river at the Jabar Canal. Seven days I was overwhelmed. Doesn't sound like he went down to get the morning paper. Chapter 1, verse 26, And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. Stones again. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, says Ezekiel. And when I saw it, what does he say? I fell on my face. John the Apostle lived three years, three and a half years with Jesus. When Jesus speaks to him in chapter one, he says, I fell down like a dead man. John sees a throne. He sees one seated on a throne. Before we go much further, let's let's cover off What's going on here with these 24 elders and these 24 thrones? The 24 thrones surround the throne. There are what are described as 24 elders, which is a man term. Why is 24 so important? Uh, A couple of things really quickly. Uh, Numbers are enormously important when it comes to prophetic language, and 12 speaks of God's redeemed people. Why 24? Because 24 is symbolic and represents the completed redeemed people from both covenants. We see that God enacts a plan of redemption through 12 patriarchs and 12 tribes of Israel. We see that God continues a new plan of redemption through 12 apostles in the new covenant. This is symbolic language of the fullness of God's redeemed people before his throne. They epitomize, that is, they are the exact representation of what redeemed people should be. What is that? Seated on thrones is a reference to influence. God has given every one of his people a position of influence in this world. Salt and light is a position of influence. They worship and bow down. Notice that the 24 elders we will see, they, they, they bow down and they cast their crowns, crowns before God. They carry, we see in chapter 5 that these 24 elders carry the bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, speaking about our communion with God. These 24 elders speak about God's redeemed people. The four living creatures, what do we know about these four living creatures? Not a whole lot until we get into glory, but here's what we know. Isaiah says that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He goes on to describe these four creatures. He calls them seraphim. We will know that uh, others uh, reference them as cherubs or cherubim. They, they surround the throne. We know that. But one thing we know about them is that they initiate and they conduct worship in the heavenlies. 
A little bit more about worship later on, but we have reduced worship down to, well, Pastor, I know what praise and worship is. Praise is the first three songs we sing on Sunday and worship's the last two songs we sing on Sunday. We're going to see the biblical definition for worship is vastly different to that. But can you imagine for a moment that what John sees when he gets into heaven is he doesn't see a whole lot of old grumpy guys. He doesn't see Moses and Noah on the golf course. What he sees is everybody engaged around the throne in worship. There is your eternity in a nutshell. We will spend eternity. We will never exhaust his glory. <laughs> eternity cannot be measured, but we will never exhaust his glory. Every time they circle the throne, they bow down and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty which is a reference to the God, the all-powerful God that has his hands in and amongst everything. I don't have an imagination wild enough to try and grapple what John was seeing. Verse, uh, we'll go down from verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. Did you get that? Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. There's a band called Casting Crowns. Casting Crowns. Wow. question is, John, we've got a brief glimpse and very, very small understanding of what you saw, but John, how did that change your perspective? How does that change our everyday lives here today? Let's begin with the three things that I've pulled out that John saw. First one is the throne. You see, what we don't have is probably an appreciation for the context, but we might grow in appreciation for the context in a moment. John, at the moment that he steps through that door, at the very moment, imagine with me for a moment, if you can, that uh, not only are Christians being persecuted and are they suffering, but it has ramped up about a hundredfold. Uh, there's a real cray-cray dude for those that are millennials here this morning. They understand the word cray-cray. Real cray-cray dude by the name of Nero who seizes power as the emperor of Rome and he decides after he lit the fires in Rome, he says, you know what, we'll blame the Christians and let's go and kill them all. They didn't succeed, by the way. But Nero was, uh, Nero was bad enough, but if he wasn't bad enough, Vespasian would follow him and intensify and ramp up the suffering and the persecution. At the moment that John is seeing this, uh, Christians are being killed and martyred across the empire of Rome. Uh, it is most likely that both Paul has been beheaded and Peter has been crucified upside down. And not only is that tolerated, it's applauded. Let's bring that into the 20th century right now. Think of some really prominent church leaders. 
And imagine you go home today and you, you listen to the news today and you read that some of the authorities went and pulled him out of church and shot him in the head out in the street. And not only is that tolerated, but it was applauded. That's the kind of environment that John's living in. Does it sound a little bit chaotic? Does it sound like things have gone crazy? Does it sound like everybody's out of control? What would everybody in the churches be saying in those days? The devil's having a field day, right? Well, amidst all of that chaos and in in all that seeming randomness and lack of control, there's a throne. And just when you think that it, it couldn't get any worse and everything's going to spiral out of control and we're all doomed, just when you think that, there's a throne and there's one seated on the throne who has all the power. He has not stepped off his throne. He has not relinquished his control. This is the absolute sovereignty of God. What John sees then changes his perspective. Why? Yes, John, it looks like chaos out there, but I haven't moved yet. In fact, I'm not even moving my fingers. There is not one part of the... uh, Jesus did not win a half victory at the cross. Jesus did not win a quarter victory at the cross. Jesus didn't manage to obtain a two-thirds victory at the cross. He would completely triumph over his enemies, making a spectacle of them. God is in control. So what should our response to that be? Seems like things might be a little bit out of control, hey? Every time you turn on the news, there's a different strain of COVID, right? Doesn't matter what COVID's doing, doesn't matter what the authorities are doing, doesn't matter what... All of that is inconsequential. Why? Because there is a throne that is seated in the middle of heaven, there is a throne that is seated in the middle of the universe, and everything revolves around this throne and the one that is seated upon that throne. And the call is for us to live our lives in a response of faith. You see, I think sometimes we mix up faith. I think sometimes we we get a wrong conception of faith. We sometimes can fall into the trap of believing that faith means you go out and you proclaim something until you change your circumstances. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't trying to change your circumstances at all. Faith is clinging on to God no matter what your circumstances. That's what faith is. That's, That's the... That's the biblical definition of faith. And it looked a little bit like this. Uh, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and they're going across the lake. And, and we, most of us here know the story. Uh, the wind and the waves get up. I've been in some pretty rough weather in boats in my time. And, and the wind and the waves get up. The waves are starting to buffet into the boat. And, and the disciples are having a, a bit of a moment. And what's Jesus doing? He's up in the bow having a snooze. He's popped a squat up the front, curled up, and he's having a sleep. How can Jesus sleep in the midst of that? I know somebody who sits on the throne. It's going to be okay, guys. When Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves and he turns to them and rebukes them for the lack of faith. Why? Was he expecting them to get up and rebuke the wind and the waves? No. No one would have expected them to do that. That's never been done before. What he expected them to do was trust the one that was in the boat with them. I told you we're going to the other side. Our response to the throne is whatever's going on out there there's a throne somebody else is in control so you too can climb up the front of the boat and pop a squat and have a snooze but but more importantly than that yes there's a throne but there's one on the throne 
I am convinced that if God would let the curtain fall for just a brief moment, I know this, anybody that catches a glimpse of Christ in his glory, it'll change them, change it for eternity. Yes, we have a throne, but there is one seated on the throne. And, and, and this one that's seated on the throne, listen to what they say of him. Holy, holy, holy. Whenever you read in Scripture something repeated three times, it means ultimate or infinite. Everybody is saying, God, you are infinitely holy, holy, holy. You see, holiness is not something God does. It is who he is. Holiness is not God living up to some kind of standard. God is the standard. When when everybody in heaven is saying, holy, holy, holy to the one that is seated on the throne, uh, yes, God is bigger than us. Yes, God is smarter than us. Yes, God is wiser and more loving than us. But God is other than us. You're a cut above God. You're holy. When I read the accounts of the first church, I hear people pray. I've got people, Pastor, we should be like the church. Yeah, I agree. But let me, a couple of things real quick. We've just been through seven churches. I've read the letters to the Corinthians, okay? They had all the same challenges and problems that the churches today face. There was, the church at Ephesus suffered two major splits. They, uh, there was problems with leadership, there problems everywhere. We had Corinthians were so cray-cray, they didn't swing from the rafters. They used to pitch their tent and have little parties up there. But there was something different in the first church. You read the book of Acts, and they were filled with wonder, and they were filled with awe, and they were filled with wonder, and they were filled with awe. We've got friends here that say, you know, we're going down to Tassie. A couple from the gym have just been down to Tassie. They come in, oh, Tassie's so wonderful. And me and Annette are like, yeah, it's all right. The church has lost that sense of God is wonderful. We've become too familiar. Peter says in his first epistle, he says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts as holy. What's Peter saying? God is special. And, and, and sanctification is the process of taking something from the ordinary and the very common to the very special. What should our response be to the one that is on the throne? How should we conduct our lives in the knowledge of this glorious one that is on the throne? Peter says that's really simple. Move him from the ordinary commonplace in your life to the very, very special. When God occupies that very, very sanctified, special place in your life, it, it changes the decisions you make. It changes the, it'll change how you treat the people around you. He is holy. We are called to be holy. The last one, I, I, I love this verse. <laughs> verse 10, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him. We understand that John sees a throne. The throne speaks of God's sovereignty and his control and his power. We see the one, the glorious one that is on the throne and we need to live our lives for him, move him to the special place in our lives. But then there's worship. And so often we confuse worship with, well, uh, yeah, okay, so worship is reserved for that half an hour on Sunday when we come together and sing songs, and we should do. You, you should get up every morning singing songs. If we, if we knew the fullness of what John was seeing here and the hope that it gives every single one of us, we, we wouldn't stop singing. 
People like me, we shouldn't sing. I've got a lovely voice, but an enormously rough passage out. But God doesn't seem to mind. And in heaven, it seems like you can have a bad voice because they're not going to hear you anyway. In fact, I've began to discover that worship isn't about how good you can sing, but maybe what kind of prostration you might have. Uh, whenever we want to understand a word, and I'll be a little bit lenient today, whenever we want to understand a word, we have to go back to the place of first mention. Uh, one of the principles of interpretation, for those Steve studying hermeneutics, he might have touched on this one, uh, we know that the place of first mention is, we go back, where was it first mentioned and what is the context? And so I'm going to be a little bit kind today. Chronologically, depending on what boxing ring you want to swing in, Job is actually the first book that was ever written. But in case you think, no, 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 Genesis was absolutely the first book that was ever written, we'll take both today. And let's take a, uh, the first mention of the word worship in both of those books and see what worship might mean in those contexts. Job chapter 1, verse 26. You can read it at home later on. What happens to Job? We know what happens to Job. Job loses everything. In one day, you ever had a day like that? Probably not. But in one day, Job loses everything. Done nothing wrong. He was a blameless and upright man. Doesn't mean he was free from, completely free from sin. Just means that his intentions were towards the Lord were upright. He was a blameless man. Didn't seem to do anything wrong. Always brought his sacrifices. Even brought sacrifices for his kids. Just in case they'd done something wrong. But in a moment, Job loses everything. And how many of us would bow down on the ground and worship? That's what it says. It says that Job kept receiving news. You've lost all your livestock. You've lost all your kids. And when all of that comes upon Job, what does Job do? Well, Job 1.26 tells us that Job bowed down and worshipped. And what I found interesting there was Chris Tomlin wasn't there. No guitar players. Nobody was, Job wasn't even singing. Because singing and song is an expression of worship, but worship is a lifestyle. The Chuck Swindoll says that faith and life is... 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react. How many of us would have been flipping our lid if we were Job? How many of us would have been doing all call and prayer meetings, ringing the government? Job worshipped. I love this next one. Uh, if you want to take Genesis, then let's take our, our walk through Genesis chapter 22 very briefly and very quickly for a moment. Genesis 22 is the account of Abraham. Uh, Abraham, uh, we know, waited a long time for Isaac, finally gets Isaac, the, the blessed child. And then, and then what does God say to Abraham? Now take your son up the mountain and sacrifice him. Now, I want to, my boys are all in the room this morning. If we're ever walking up a mountain and I've got an arm full of lumber, you're in trouble. Free. I, I want you to know I'm just following scripture. But the interesting thing was that uh, we're going to see the word worship used here in a really interesting context because what God is challenging or testing is what place do I have in Abraham's heart? And, and so God comes to Abraham and says, take the lad up the mountain and sacrifice him. What we know from Hebrews 11 is, we get a bit of an insight. It says that uh, Abraham reckoned or reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. So there you go, boys. You might be okay. 
But I love Abraham's response. God says, take the boy up the mountain. Abraham doesn't hold a prayer meeting. He's not running around binding and loosing everything. Didn't rebuke anyone or anything. It actually says he got up early. Wow, didn't waste any time. He got up early and he said to those that were with him, me and the lad are going to worship. Oh, where's Chris Tomlin? Not there. Hillsong? No, no, no. No five-piece band. Why? Because worship is a posture of our life. The word worship means to pay homage. It means to, to give homage to a, to a deity. And the word homage means to publicly reverence or honour someone else. Worship's about what you do. This, this, is, this is enormously practical. Why? Because worship is what you do when you're at work. Worship is how you respond to the checkout chick that's at the supermarket. Worship is what you do in your everyday life when you choose God. When God holds that place in your heart, your life will be a life of homage. I'm going to ask Sonia if she can come and play very gently. I want to bring this to a conclusion this morning as we, before we run away. What John sees in chapter 4 of Revelation, he sees a throne, he sees one seated on the throne and he sees an immense worship service. Some days I think, you know, when I go to heaven, I'll come back to the rock for, on Sundays for worship, but now I'm not so sure. But you know, I was pondering this over the week and I'm thinking, God, you are holy, holy, holy. How can we... Aristotle said, God and man can't be friends because there's just, there's just no likeness. How can we ever stand in your presence? How can you like us, God? I know you guys have got it all together, but there's some days when I'm a hot mess. God, how do you put up with us? With all the sin we know that's in our hearts, how can we possibly stand before you? And I don't know about anybody else here, but I, I like mayonnaise. Any foodies in the room today, I love mayonnaise. In fact, I'm going to tell you today that 99% fat-free mayonnaise changed my life. <laughs> but for the foodies in the room, you'll know something about mayonnaise. The, the main ingredients for mayonnaise are egg and vinegar. And I don't care what you do with that egg and vinegar, you can't get them to combine. You can mix, whisk, throw, do whatever you like, but what will happen is they'll continuously separate. The egg will separate from the vinegar. Doesn't matter what you do. You know, that's a lot like man and God. <laughs> it doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter how much we scrub up, doesn't matter what clothes we put on, you can come to church all you like. You see, Christianity is not about how much you come to church or whether you read your Bible and pray, it's about living a life in reverence of the one who's seated on the throne. And how can we stand in your presence, oh God? How could we ever be together? Well, you'll learn from mayonnaise that you need an emulsifier. Do you know if you take if you take egg and vinegar and you add oil, all of a sudden you end up with mayonnaise. Jesus is my oil. Jesus is my emulsifier. To the one who's holy, holy, holy. Jesus, you bring us together. Man could never stand before God. We've been trying it for centuries. We're still trying it today. Give up your trying. You don't have to. You might be sitting here today saying, I've never bowed to the one who's on the throne. Don't leave here today without making that choice. 
you might be sitting here today saying to yourself, you know what? I've spent far too long worried about my own throne, God. I want to cast my crown today. And I want to put you back in the special place that you should have always been in. And maybe the message you needed to hear today is in all the chaos that's outside this door, there is still one seated on the throne. Can we just sit for for a moment as the music plays in quiet? heads are bowed, hearts would bow here in this place this morning before the one who was seated on the throne. Lord, I want my heart to bow more. There are moments when I'm far too prideful, far too concerned with my own throne. There are times when I let far too many other things come into the special place of my heart. And I want them to go today and I want you to take that special place we sit here before you in your presence you know every heart, you know every person, you know every circumstance I just want to thank you today that I have a hope that I can anchor my soul in that rests outside the chaos of this world Jesus we're going to learn when we look at chapter 5, Jesus we're going to learn just how worthy you really are I want my worship service to start here I pray that you would increase each and every one of our understanding. I pray that each and every one of us, Lord, would, even for a glimpse and a brief moment, that we would step through that door. Father, I know I want to know what that peace, that complete calm that is before your presence and in your throne, what that means. Holy Spirit, grip our hearts, I pray. May we, each and every one of us, regain that awe and wonder of the magnificent, glorious one that is seated on the throne. Father, we ask this in your wonderful and glorious name this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, Subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.